Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Two decades ago, Elliot Perlman was a junior lawyer working in a toxic corporate culture where bullying, overwork and sexual harassment were the norm. Now that young lawyer is an acclaimed author of five books, including The Street Sweeper, The Reasons I Won't Be Coming and Three Dollars. And with his latest novel, Maybe the Horse Will Talk, Elliot comes full circle, exploring the damage, damaging culture that led him to leave corporate law. The book is sadly a timely one in the era of Me Too and Time's Up. And Elliot will join me very, very soon to talk about his new book and the culture that motivated it. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Stephen Mazarov is a second-year lawyer working for the notoriously toxic and aptly named firm Freely Savage Carter Blanche. His hard-won law career has already cost him his marriage and without any partners backing him, Mazarov may be culled before his third year. That is until he takes a risk that just might pay off. But will he have to do something morally indefensible to keep his job? Or is there a way to change the broken culture from within? And so begins the plot of Elliot Perlman's latest book, Maybe the Horse Will Talk, a book that explores the deeply entrenched misogyny and inhumane practices of the profit-driven working world and what, if anything, can be done to change it. Elliot joins me now to talk about his new book and the experiences that motivated it. Elliot Perlman, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. And look, I'm, we've got quite a bit of time today to talk about, you know, not just this book, but perhaps other elements of your writing career. So I'm really looking forward to that. But let's really start with this book because it's a long-awaited uh, return to the novel form for you. Uh, a lot of people are big fans of your work. And so this is, you know, very much something that people have been focusing on is, is the fact that this book took you know maybe eight years to produce and over that time obviously there has been the this big explosion of focus on the topics at the heart of the book but this kind of rot is something that you really observed many many years ago and I understand that you really started working on this book you know probably as long as long ago as a decade so can you talk about where this book came from? Sure um well, in a, in a macro sense, it came from my observation of Australia. Um, I felt that in our um, in our capital cities, and not just our capital cities, but regional towns, we're experiencing something of a, an epidemic of stress. You, you see it everywhere. Um, you you see it even on the roads. You know, people would let you in when you're trying to make a turn, and now they don't, or they 
cut you off in traffic before you know and force you to slow down even though you were the one going straight little things like that also you see it um you see men in particular ready almost ready to fight for no reason or being defensive anyway you know and you see women looking away particularly when a man comes um it's often a, a defensive gesture on a woman's part and you know i've thought gee is it that bad is it so bad that um i can't smile at a stranger walking past me on the street because it's a sunny day without her being fearful what have men been doing you know how to how to not just men and not just women but how do we all get into this position and it led me to think this chronic epidemic of stress as i'm calling it probably comes from the world of work i think i know there was a, an american psychological association study from 2015 that said the two biggest sources of stress in the US this is before Trump who might be a third one but the two biggest at that time were money and work and i think we're in an incredibly similar position in this respect in australia the the, the workforce can be sort of divided into about three different categories and you know if we had more time probably even more than that but at the upper end in terms of people with hours of work and probably with income too they're being asked to be contactable 24-7. They're being set these arbitrary goals that they have to meet, you know, KPIs. Everybody's got a key performance indicator that they've got to meet. Um, these sort of astonishingly ridiculous targets that have no basis in reality or science or reason. Um, it's just somebody decides you need to have done, you know, 10 of these or 100 of these by a certain date in the year. And should you ever get to that point... They'll just increase it, again, without any reason. And um, then, you know, way down the bottom end, there are the much maligned unemployed. And in Australia, the unemployed's hovered between about 35 and 7.5% over the last 40 years. And then there's a group that hardly ever gets talked about, and it's much, much larger than the much maligned unemployed, and... These are the people who are the involuntarily underemployed. They are people with at least one hour of work, but nowhere near enough hours to feel safe, comfortable, uh, secure, able to make plans for their future. These people are um, paying off or paying for an education. Um, they're, they're just trying to pay their rent. I mean, they'd love to get some money together to put a deposit on a, on a flat or even a house. They can't. Uh, if they get ill and they, need, they feel they need treatment urgently, longer than the public, you know, sooner than the public system will provide, then they're going to need private health insurance. Maybe they need to help their elderly parents. Um, these people are the involuntarily underemployed and at different times in the economic cycle, their number can be between 15 and 20% of the workforce. So if you add the 15 to 20% with the anywhere between 35 and 7.5%, you variously get crudely between 18 and 25% of the Australian workforce who don't have enough work. And when they don't have enough work, they're stressed and it comes out in all sorts of ways, physically, 
They have all sorts of illnesses. Um, they are also more susceptible to illnesses. They get sick more often. Um, even things that might sound trivial from a macro perspective, like just catching colds and flus and coughs and things, but they get them more often. And they feel run down. It spills over into their mental health. They suffer anxiety. They suffer depression. Um, they self-medicate with various substances and frequently fall into a trap of overusing them. They get addictions. So these are the people at the bottom end. Now, the people at the top end know about this. They might not know the precise statistic, but they're terrified that they will fall into the gig economy. And so they put up with all sorts of appalling treatment. They're treated like children in uh, an environment where you're, you're a child, you're a recalcitrant child, you're a stupid recalcitrant child who has been conscripted into the military uh, by some kind of psychotic sergeant major during a time of war in which the enemy is you. It's sort of, in your book, you've kind of really used Freely Savage as it is uh, quite humorously truncated to as a kind of archetypical version of that it's really you know quite an extreme example of you know what the workforce can sometimes do on more subtle levels but it's really you know it houses this absolute you know like all of the ills that we associate with a kind of autocratic work system where you know constant fear of losing your job or you know being unemployed really is the stick at the heart of all of this. And, and you really do kind of portray that well. I'm really interested uh, in the mechanisms that you've sort of looked at within this particular story, though. And I think when I first started reading it, I thought this feels like an archaic world where, you know, it's still very unreconstructed. The men have the positions of power. Women are in subordinate roles. They're objectified. They're, they're given very little sort of, um, you know, interior lives or substance. You do flip that in the book and, and I can see, uh, you know, how you've sort of painted things. So I was tempted to sort of ask, do you feel as though uh, anything has really changed remarkably since, you know, 20 years ago when you were a junior lawyer? Or do you feel as though we're just exposing things that are still very much at the heart of working life? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'll, I'll say I set it in a law firm because that's my background. It's, it's the hierarchy I know best. But it's everywhere. It's in, and I've been told this as I've travelled around Australia, it's in health, it's in education, it's in government, government departments. Essentially, any institution these days is given the same treatment. Uh, people are treated the same way. And, you know, <laughs> why there should be key performance indicators in a, in a university or in a hospital or, you know, um, when you're trying to make people feel better or you're trying to educate people or, you know, or entertain people. Um, and... Yeah, look, to, to answer your question, I saw appalling behaviour when I was a baby lawyer in these kind of firms. And you ask people, not just my contemporaries, but, you know, junior lawyers of today, and they will whisper, it's the same, it's the same. And what you get now is a much smarter bureaucracy that will have fronts, you know, like an are you okay day. Are you okay? I just asked you, okay, tick. I did it. 
I don't give a shit. You're not okay and I'm causing it, but I asked you if you're okay, so I get to tick it. Well, there's a scene in your book, I think, where, you know, Mazarov is asked to be the sort of spokesperson for the second-year lawyers to find out whether or not they're okay about hot desking. I mean, they're probably going to fire most of them. but um, <laughs> Including but they, him. <laughs> including him, but they sort of want to consult about this minor you know, detail of their working lives, um, which they're not really in a position to bargain with. And I think there are moments like that in the book that really sort of, you know, cast a, uh, you know, this in a sort of humorous light, which you've tried to do throughout the book. Quite a feat, I must say, for this really dark subject matter. Uh, You also look at, you know, the complicity of the systems in place. And, you know, I want to start out actually by by asking you about, uh, you know, the complicity of lawyers, because this is a law firm. And, you know, Jodie Cantor and, and Megan Tui have just put out a book recently called She Said, which sort of looks at the Harvey Weinstein case. And it does kind of delve into the complicity of of Harvey Weinstein's lawyers, uh, quite uh, notably Lisa Bloom, who, you know, was kind of, I guess, billed as a, a quite famous feminist lawyer who actually really was complicit with Weinstein in, you know, working on sort of hush payments to the women involved rather than, you know, finding a more humane way to, to you know, have dealings around this. Where do those lines blur when it comes to, you know, people who are, you know, lawyers, I guess, representing sexual harassers. Uh, this, this is definitely a topic in your book. I don't want to give away too much at the heart of, you know, the kind of plot points at the heart of the book. But, you know, where does that kind of complicity fit in? And, you know, of course, there's other systems at play here too, but particularly lawyers. Well, I, I should say um, I haven't had a chance to read that book, the Jodie Cantor book. Um, it sounds fascinating and I know, I mean, the little I've read about it, which have been newspaper articles, magazine articles, suggest unbelievable complicity from the lawyers. They're quite breathtaking. And I think, you know, it's important to recognise that there's a whole spectrum of lawyers, um, many of whom behave entirely ethically. But it's the ones who don't. That's our legal disclaimer for this. Well, yeah, that's a legal... No, but... Not all lawyers. No, I think it's important because lawyers are... They do very important work and we need to trust the system uh, and at the same time use that system to root out, ferret out the ones that are doing the wrong thing. It's the system that will help us find those people. So it it doesn't help us to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. But having said that, there are some appalling examples and I've tried to um, shine a light on some of them in Maybe the Horse Will Talk. And... uh, yeah, look, I think the system is is suggesting, well, not suggesting, but the system militates towards, um, because it's adversarial, there is, okay, look, let's cut to the chase. Why is it the case that it's so much more dangerous for somebody to be charged with insider trading? You've got a much higher likelihood of doing time in prison if you're charged with insider trading than if you're charged with rape. I mean, that's... That's the statistic that kind of cuts through. We, we could talk a lot about the institutions, and, and we can, and I try. I have a lot of fun with it. But um, I've made that point using the uh, about the likelihood of incarceration, depending on you know which you were charged with. And you do want a system that makes it hard for a person who's not guilty to be found guilty, and you don't want to uh, come into a a situation in any charge where 
already it's stacked against the defendant. But having said that, surely more, and they're usually men, more men are guilty of rape than are being found guilty of rape. And obviously, more rapes are happening than are resulting in charges. So why is this happening? I can only suggest the following, and I say it without any... um, with without any uh, research to support me this is my opinion it's a gut feeling i have i think the fault lies in society who are represented by jurors in the in the legal in the criminal legal system why is it that jurors including women sometimes more women than men are not believing women that's the question I think you've got to ask yourself when it comes to um, when it comes to something like insider trading, a commercial matter. Juries don't have a problem believing the prosecution. When it comes to rape, juries are having statistically a greater problem believing that it wasn't, for example, consensual. Elliot, um, I would love you to kind of give us a little bit of a, a sense of the writing of this book because you do really plumb a lot of the, the worst aspects of this terrible workplace that you have shown us, Freely Savage, uh, a, you know, a law firm, a corporate law firm that has pretty much all of the, the kinds of worst case scenarios of a toxic workplace. Sure, I, I would love to do that. Um... So Stephen Masarov used to be a teacher and he married fellow teacher Eleanor and they kept having financial problems and they kept, you know, bills would flood in, things would break in their house and they thought we're going to sink if one of us doesn't go back to uni and get a degree that provides a better paying job. So they decide that it should be Stephen and he will go back and do law and You'll see what happens. He he finds himself as a second-year law lawyer and he's in this scene just about to go into the office of the scariest partner in the whole firm. This man's name is Hamilton. And Hamilton is so scary and horrible that his other partners hate him and fear him. One of them, for example, goes to a Catholic priest and asks the priest if Catholicism could condone prayer for the death of a man if the man that would die, uh, his death would bring comfort to hundreds if not thousands of other people. And when the priest tells him, "Mm, no, we can't really condone prayer for the death of a man, then uh, the partner says that he will continue his spiritual quest looking for a more accommodating religion. And it's into this office that Masarov is about to go and In this meeting with Hamilton, he's about to meet the CEO of the firm's biggest client. The CEO is named uh, Malcolm Torrent, and Malcolm Torrent is the CEO of Torrent Industries, a huge construction behemoth with a value of around $37 They engage in construction here in Australia and also internationally. And this is a meeting that Stephen Masarov is about to go into, and he's only a second-year lawyer. Masarov, I don't believe you've met Malcolm Torrent? Of course he hadn't met Malcolm Torrent. He'd spoken to Hamilton no more than six times, 
and on most of these occasions, when he'd gone home at the end of the day and told his wife about it, she'd poured him a double scotch to help him recover. This was in the days before they'd separated, or more precisely, before she'd asked him to leave. Uh, Pleased to meet you, Mr Torrent, he said, as he and Malcolm Torrent shook hands. Masarov, I want to thank you for your work on the Hofner file. Stephen Masarov's forced smile froze, as did the layer of sweat that adhered to his back. A miniature vertical dead sea that no shirt or jacket could be trusted to hide. Stephen Masarov had not worked on the Hofner file. Not only that, he had never heard of the Hofner file. Should he accept thanks for work he hadn't done, in the hope that it would help him, or should he immediately volunteer that he hadn't worked on the Hofner file, and hope for praise for his honesty, or at least a quick and neutral return to the position he was in when he'd walked in the room? There was no time to consider it. No time to call his wife, even assuming she was free and agreeable to taking his call. Following the birth of their second child, she'd resumed teaching on a part-time basis, and he knew she'd probably be teaching at that very minute. They had met when they'd both been teachers. They'd married, and soon after putting a deposit on a house, reached the conclusion that at least one of them needed a better-paying job. So Stephen Masarov got himself into law school as a mature-age student, and Eleanor supported them both on her teacher's salary. The arrival of their first son, however, and the years and the money sacrificed so that Stephen could study law, took a toll on their marriage. They thought things might improve when Stephen took a job at a prestigious city law firm, but they were wrong. The long, gruelling and bewildering hours Masarov spent at work only deepened the chasm between them. In an attempt to save their marriage he mounted a case for having another child, which was an especially heroic offer, given that he barely saw his wife any more and hadn't seen his libido since the previous financial year. Sure enough, another son was born. He was loud and healthy, but the marriage was, by Eleanor's reckoning, terminally ill. Describing herself as a corporate widow in all but liberty, one who had contracted a sexually transmitted debt, Eleanor suggested a trial separation. If you keep a clean shirt in your office, you won't even notice, Eleanor advised. But Stephen Masarov didn't have an office. He lived in a collapsible workstation in one of the interstices between other people's promising careers in the glass and steel caged tower of freely savage Carter Blanche. Most nights since they'd separated four months earlier, Stephen Masarov, now aged 32, would visit the marital home to help put their two young children to bed with the additional not-so-well-hidden hope of reconciling with Eleanor. Then he would return to work for a few hours to try to make the day's budget. Now, as the early morning sun streamed through the windows of Hamilton's corner office, he was being thanked by the firm's most important client in front of its most feared partner, for work on a file he had never before heard of. Telling the truth had for him always been entirely autonomic, but he'd been at the firm long enough to learn that the truth was actually just one of a number of options open to someone. It was always good to have options, but one needed time to consider them, otherwise one could choke on them. 
Malcolm Torrent of Torrent Industries and Hamilton were waiting for a reply concerning his work on the Hofner file, a file Masarov had never heard of. What harm could there be in admitting the truth? It wasn't as if he'd done anything wrong in the file. He hadn't worked on it at all. But credit from Malcolm Torrent, especially credit given in front of Hamilton, could be the genuine launch of a career. It could deliver him from obscurity, nay, anonymity, and then later. Once his tenure was more secure, the truth could be wheeled out like an overlooked driving infraction. Masarov? Stephen Masarov heard Hamilton say, interrupting Masarov's terror-fueled internal debate with himself and forcing him to imagine how he must have looked standing there mute in response to Malcolm Torrance's praise. This imagining itself took a few seconds, and that too suddenly dawned on Stephen Masarov. I, um, wish I could accept your thanks, Mr Torrent, but I didn't work on that file. Hamilton and Malcolm Torrent looked at each other in surprise. Is this true? Torrent asked. Then why are you here? Hamilton asked. I, um, I had a message from Human Resources late yesterday to come here, but perhaps there's been some mistake, Masarov volunteered before clearing his throat. Hamilton picked up a file from his desk and started scanning it. Perhaps there's another Masarov in the firm, Stephen Masarov said, as though he needed to explain not merely his presence, but his existence. Perhaps... He's the one who worked on the Hofner file. Stephen Masarov knew there was no one else with his surname working at the firm. Without looking up, Hamilton spoke quietly. Yes, it's the other Masarov. Not this Masarov. Stephen Masarov was astonished by the speed with which Hamilton had made the misinformation his own. I don't know why this Masarov is here. I'm sorry, Malcolm, Hamilton said. Shall I get a message to him, Mr. Hamilton? To the other Masarov? Masarov asked nervously. No, you just go back to your workstation. Just a minute, Malcolm Torrance said. I like the fact that you didn't even for a moment try to get credit for something you didn't do. You like that? Hamilton asked, perplexed. I do. I like the look of this particular Masarov. I smell integrity of some kind. What level are you? Haven't seen you before. I'm a second year, sir. Aren't you a bit old to be only a second year? There must be some kind of a story attached to you. Am I right? Integrity can hold you back, you know. I was a teacher before I studied law. A teacher? Now that's actually something socially useful, Malcolm Torrent exclaimed. What do you mean, socially useful? Hamilton asked. (laughs) He doesn't even know what it means, Malcolm Torrent laughed. Addressing Masarov. Stephen Masarov was stunned to be having a conversation like this with Malcolm Torrent of all people and in Hamilton's office. None of his colleagues would believe it. His wife wouldn't believe it. What made you give up teaching to practice law? Torrent continued to Masarov's amazement. Well, um, before we were married, Eleanor. My wife and I used to joke that there was an inverse relationship between the social utility of one's job and one's salary, so we decided that one of us better... Actually, it's no joke, Malcolm Torrent interrupted. Look at what teachers, nurses, 
social workers, childcare workers, aged care workers and paramedics earn when you think of the help, the vital service that they provide every day and then think of what they earn. How do they live? What the hell kind of society is this? And it's not just them, social workers, Hamilton spat out. Joy, will you get in here, please? Right away. I have to go, Malcolm Torrance said, looking at his watch. But whichever Masarov you are, it's Stephen Masarov. Stephen, I'd like you to assist with my legal work. Not the company's legal matters, but my personal ones. You'll arrange that for me, won't you, Hamilton? Torrance said as Joy entered the room. Hamilton focused all his agitation on his personal assistant. Joy, I want you to find the other Masarov who works here. Mr. Torrent, Masarov began, I'm really very grateful for the interest you're showing in me. Frankly, I can't believe this is happening. It's not, said Joy. What? This isn't really happening, she reiterated to Stephen Masarov as she kneaded Hamilton's shoulders from behind his chair. "'You do have a meeting with Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Torrent this morning,' she continued. "'But this isn't it. "'This is an anxiety-related dream you're having "'in the very early morning before the real meeting.' "'You're kidding.' "'No, I'm not. "'Ask yourself which part of this, given what you know about the world, "'seems real.' Oh, my God. None of it does. No, the fear you brought in with you to Mr. Hamilton's office truly reflects your reality. But have you ever known me to talk so freely, so eloquently, and so analytically? No. No, I haven't. Oh, God, what happens now? Well, you had felt in the dream that it was all going well, but that was only because thinking of me had given you a testosterone rush. You're about to wake up desperately out of breath. It will feel like a heart attack, but that would get you out of this morning's meeting, so you won't be that lucky. See the daylight sneaking in through the gaps in the curtains and the cracks in your squinting, crusty eyelids. Uncaring, bright, white light lying in wait for you. Here comes your real life. See the hot red numbers on the digital clock, the seconds sizzling contemptuously on the time allocated to you like an angry skin condition. Those numbers are not there to help you. They're there to chronicle your torment, staring at your reflection in the toilet bowl before you urinate in it, which you're about to do, will somehow trigger fond memories of the days when your son would wet himself in the bed you used to share with your wife. Then you'll picture her already up making his school lunch in the marital home you're still helping to pay off. But right now, you haven't even lifted your head from the pillow. It won't be easy. Your lower back's going to hurt you on your left side, and you won't know why. There it is. Feel it catch on your left side? Quite young for that, really, aren't you? Counting you in now. Four, three, know you're running late. Here you go. Sharp pain, back and chest. Is that the beginnings, the faint stirrings of a headache, is it? Can you hear its gallop growing ever louder and louder? Okay, mouth dry, desert dry, tumbleweed dry, 
tongue a tumescent swatch from a fetid shag pile carpet of pathogens. Have to scrape it off to join society. Bladder, full as an ocean. Paid off the house yet? Running quite late? Own that chest pain? Two? One? All on your own now. Breathe. Thank you so much. That was uh, Elliot Perlman reading from his latest book, Maybe the Horse Will Talk. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and we've been talking about this book, which is, as you probably guessed from that reading, a satire. Uh, the title itself sort of comes uh, comes up in the book. Uh, it's a, I guess, a parable that uh, that you know your main character Stephen Mazarov is telling to his son, uh, and I won't kind of give you give away too much about what the implicit meaning of that story is, but it it sort of reflects, I guess, what's happening in the rest of the book, and and I guess the arch style that you've approached this kind of satirical writing with. But I'm sort of interested in plumbing that a little bit more because you've uh, you've written a children's book uh, very recently, in fact. Um, and so I'm kind of fascinated by, you know, how much of writing for children is sort of, you know, I guess linked to this kind of writing for adults because, you know, there are certain elements in uh, in this book, the style of writing where, say, for example, there's repetition of names or there's sort of a sense of rhythm to the writing. Is that something that I guess you've, you know, you've drawn from children's writing or vice versa? Well, the thing about the novel for children, The Adventures of Catfinkel, which I should say also uh, touches on, uh, you know, social issues, it touches on, uh, it's really written in, in response to Trump, um, is written for primarily 7 to 11-year-olds, although I've been told that younger kids have had it read to them and enjoyed it. And I've, I've tried to put layers of humour there so that adults can enjoy it and, you know, anyone who's had to read to young kids knows that feeling of wanting to throw the book across the room. The kid wants the book and you're thinking, oh, if I have to read this again, I'm going to rip my own head off. So I've tried to make it you know, funny for, for adults as well. And the, the social messages there were um, it, it's, it's uh, dealing with xenophobia and racism and bullying and trying to encourage a moral bravery so that um, difference is understood and ex- accepted rather than being feared or punished and um it's really uh asking for social inclusion and and when trump got in and one could see the ever growing international tolerance of intolerance this growing tolerance of intolerance in all respects you know with respect to gender uh you know difference generally in every way um I thought, where do you start? And the answer I came up with for myself was you start with children. And so I made it as funny as I could, thinking that is a useful device um, rather than sort of standing on a soapbox and preaching, which can be incredibly off-putting even to people that agree with you. Um, I thought, well, let's use humour on the kids so that they barely even notice the message um, and then we can talk to them about the characters later. And there are um, on the publisher's website notes for teachers to try and engage the kids in conversations. It's a cat and a dog who are forced to live together. They're not expected to get along and they become best friends. And there are two older children uh, that need... Sorry, two children, not that old, who need the help of the cat and the dog and both the cat and the dog want to help the children, but they realise they're going to 
suffer fallout from the respective cat and dog communities if they're brave enough to help the kids. So the question is, will they be brave enough to help the kids and do the right thing, or will they literally stay in the closet? Will they come out of the closet, or will they literally stay in the closet? And um, it enabled me to be more whimsical than I'd ever been before, and that was incredibly freeing. And I thought, you know, I can use this. I'd already started working on Maybe the Horse Will Talk uh, and written quite a lot of it by then, but I thought there's no reason why I have to be hamstrung in terms of the humour and the whimsy there. You know, I know having been a baby lawyer in, in these scary places, what if there was somebody there who would just tell the truth and pierce the, the pretension um, and cut through the bullshit? It would be incredibly funny. It would be incredibly liberating. That person might not survive very long, but, um, you know, they would bring comfort and relief to a lot of suffering people. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you do use, you know, this is one of the great things that I keep talking about when it comes to fiction and, and talking about political issues, which you're unashamed in doing. Is this, you know, way that you can kind of, you know, you can flip perspective and really look at the issue from another side, I guess. And in your book, uh, that flip comes where you give uh, Jessica and Anne a perspective uh, on a lot of the things that have been going on. So that sort of, you know, fills out uh, where things are going. And Jessica is kind of, you know, she's got a lot of sort of serious elements in the book, uh, as well as being potentially a love interest, let's just say. Um, but she's also, you know, got her own kind of weird queer humour, which includes things like, uh, you know, wanting to, her main aim in life is to do a TED talk and <laughs> not just one of those TEDx talks. She actually wants it to be a real one. That's her main ambition. Even with the Clintons. With the Clintons, yeah. that's right. Uh, it's It's kind of one of those things that I think that you can can really see being, uh, you know, an advantage to fiction writing. I do really want to talk about the political elements, though, because, you know, to what extent do you feel as though, you know, activism generally is something that you do in your life and to what extent do you feel like it's an important part of your writing? Look, it, it is, I, I can see now, you know, my first novel, $3, was published uh, 21 years ago and if I look back at my work... Um, apart from wishing I'd written faster, um, I can see just about everything I write is um, propelled, animated by a kind a, a socio-political perspective, which is, you know, frankly, on the left, it's progressive. And that's because these things have always been important to me personally. And it's not the only kind of literature that I read, but, excuse me, it's... Uh, you just think, I, I, I know I would feel, I, okay, I don't think that I have ever changed uh, one policy in government or opposition, you know, nobody ever listens to me and I probably never changed one vote either. It's not like somebody read $3 and decided oh, I'll, I'll vote a different way to the way I was going to vote. But I think what I can do, and I don't think this is overly ambitious, is to make people who are starting to feel this way think, that's right, that's what I think. Or people who already know that, you know, they're well and truly entrenched in views that are similar to mine, to make them feel they're not so alone. And, you know, one of the 
successes, unfortunately, of what would you call it, you know, market fundamentalism or neoliberalism or uh, economic rationalism, Thatcherism, Reaganomics, whatever you call it, over the last 40 years is to isolate people. It's been a, a cult of individualism so that you feel you're in this alone and the messages that get sent to you variously are everything's great, you're not doing well, it's your fault, like you're a loser and everyone else is doing great. Look at their car, look at their house, their, you know, look at all these television shows about renovating and upgrading and you know, making you better and then another show about you know, how cruel can we be to you because either you don't sing as well as we want you to or you don't look in a certain way or you bake cakes that don't quite measure up and we're going to be cruel to you. I mean, all of this kind of uh, nastiness, you know, basically, a lack of um, community, a lack of group feeling when the reality is we are all in this together. We are unequivocally in this together. And if we could only get the message out to the poor bugger that's in their flat by themselves fighting anxiety or depression, unemployment, uh, relationship breakdown and say, you know what, you're suffering and it's not your fault. And if you think you're the only one, come with me, come next door. Let's meet your neighbour. And then your neighbour feels the same way. And the person on the other side of them feels the same way. We are all in this together. And I don't think it's too big a hope to be able to make people recognise themselves, their friends, their family in books like mine and say, let's start talking about this stuff. Let's start talking about, you know, the toxic workplace. Let's start calling out sexism when we see it. And, you know, on the, on the issue of sexism and, and sexual harassment in the workplace, I thought, you can't really write about a toxic workplace and ignore that. It's a huge part of it. You know, women, as I've got Jessica saying in the novel, um, women have to endure all of the horrible <laughs> uh, effects of being in the workplace, um, you know, that we've talked about, the the, um, the mind games, the toxic managers, the... the uh, being contactable 24 hours, 24-7 and, and, and goals that are ridiculous. And then on top of all that, and plus the economic insecurity, the precariousness of their jobs, and then on top of that, there's a whole truckload of problems that women have in the workplace or in society generally, but I'm talking about the workplace, that men don't have. And what's interesting about this, I think, that I've tried to get through the novel through Masarov is... There are uh, obviously a category of men that perpetrate sexual harassment. And then there are a, there's a category that's even larger who don't perpetrate it, but I think they enable it. And they sort of get away from um, doing anything about it by saying, oh, well, I would never do anything. And they let a comment go when there are only men in the room that they shouldn't let go. And you can do this with racism too. The, there's, there's, a, there's a long train line that takes you, you know, from an off-colour comment and the last station on the train line is rape. Stop the joke, you might have a better chance of stopping some of the rapes. 
Well, on that uh, somewhat important and sombre note, I think we should leave this interview, uh, which has been such a delight. Thank you so much for joining me today, Elliot Perlman. My pleasure, Mel. That was author Elliot Perlman. Uh, It was very nice to be able to spend a lengthy amount of time talking with Elliot about his latest book, Maybe the Horse Will Talk, which is out now through Vintage. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.